Hey, this is Byron, and I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Church. Thanks for listening to our weekly sermon podcast. I hope this message blesses you, encourages you, and helps you experience life change through Jesus. For more sermons like this, blogs, resources, or opportunities to get connected, visit us at www.redemptiontx.com. Redemption Church exists to see a gospel-centered movement in the heart of the city where every man, woman, and child experiences life change through Jesus. That's, that's who we are. That's why we exist. And that's the whole reason that we are doing this sermon series, taking a look at what it means for us to be a church for life change through Jesus. You, you came in this morning, and as you pulled into the parking lot on the wall outside and big baptism photos that say life change through Jesus. When you walked into the lobby, you saw big, bold, black letters. What does it say? Life change through Jesus. Maybe as you go online or follow us on Instagram or Facebook, you visit the website, and big letters, it says life change through Jesus. And maybe you're new to redemption, you're wondering, what is this church all about? Why is this church here? Why does Beaumont need another church? Why does redemption exist? Four words, life changed through Jesus. That's who we are. That's why we exist. And that's why we're doing this entire series. It's a vision series. It's just four weeks looking at four stories of life change that takes place. And the reason why we're doing this is because we want to show you that this phrase is not something that we came up with because it was clever, because it was catchy, or because we we thought it was cool, right? This is actually something that's deeply rooted in the scriptures. It doesn't come from a board meeting, but rather it comes from the Bible. And this is actually God's heart for all people. That this isn't just something that we want to see. It's something that God wants to see. This isn't just something that we dream about. This is what God dreams about. This isn't just something that we long for and look forward to. This is something that we believe that God longs for and God looks forward to. This is not just something we put on a wall. At Redemption Church, this is something that God has placed in our hearts. And so if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter 10. We're going to see this play out in the lives of two men. But while you're finding your place there, there's something very important that I want to show you. All right, if you throw the vision statement up, here's what we see. There's one word in this vision statement that's very significant, and you might have missed it, so I want to point it out to you. It means a lot to me, and it means a lot to God, and what we're going to see happen in the Bible today. Here's what we believe, a gospel-centered movement in the heart of the city where every man, woman, and child experiences life change through Jesus. A very important word, it's that word, every. That word is very significant. That means every, that every single person in the city of Beaumont, there is 130,000 people here in this city. Do you believe that God loves every one of them? In the greater Southeast Texas area, many of you are from Orange or Lumberton, Nederland, Port Arthur, maybe Groves or Vider, and you're driving here. There's 500,000 people who live within a 25-mile radius of our church. Do you believe that God loves every single one of them? Do you believe that every means every? Do you believe that God loves everyone, that God can save anyone, that God, he wants to see everyone experience life change through Jesus? Do you believe that everyone means everyone? My fear is that it's easy to say everyone, when in reality, we really only mean some. We're going to actually see this take place today. Do you believe that life change is for everyone, or do we think that life change is only available for some? When we say everyone, is that really what we mean? And this really comes from the text in Acts chapter 10, verse 42. Here's, here's what it says. It says that everyone, okay? That's a very important word. Acts 10, verse 42. It says everyone. Do you know what everyone is in the Greek? Everyone. Do you know what it means? Everyone means all. Everyone means anyone. Not just how high you can count. Not just almost. Not just most. Not just some. But everyone means everyone. Who believes in him? Who's that? It's Jesus. 
Everyone who puts their hope and their trust and their faith in the person and work of Jesus, they receive the forgiveness of their sins through his name. That it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what you've gone through. It doesn't matter what you've done in your life, how far you've run. It doesn't matter. Anything that you can do is never too far from the love and from the grace and from the reach of who God is. That anyone means everyone. And when God says everyone, you know what he means? He means everyone. Because life change is not just for some. Life change is available for everyone. And we're going to see this play out in the lives of two men. The first man we meet, his name is Cornelius. Right? Cornelius, up until this point in his life, he believed that life change really only meant for some. He said, oh, that's just for those people, but I don't know if God's going to do it for me. That's just for them, but I just don't really know if that's for me. And when he would hear that there's life change for everyone, what Cornelius would think is life change is only for some. And here's the reason why. Cornelius is a Gentile. Cornelius is someone who is far from God. Cornelius, he's not from Jerusalem. He's from Caesarea. He's from Rome. And up until this point, life change for them really only meant life change for some. And then there's another man we're going to meet. His name is Peter. And Peter, he is a, a Jew. He was actually one of Jesus' hand-selected disciples. He was the leader of the early church. And up until this point, Peter thought life change was only for some. In week one of this series, we saw the birth of the church in what is known as Pentecost. Peter stood up as the church was exploding with growth. And, and here's, here's what he said. He says that, Jesus called us to go and be his witnesses from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And Acts chapter 10 takes place five years after Acts chapter 2. And it's been five years of Peter leading and serving and preaching. And up until this point, life change for him really only meant life change for some. And today we're going to see how God brings these two men together and he shows us that when God says everyone, he means everyone. And the first thing we're going to see is this, is that Cornelius was willing, but he was unable. Some people are willing, they're just unable. And here's how the story goes. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. He was a devout man who feared God with all of his household. He gave alms generously to all people, and he prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come and say to him, Cornelius. And I love this. He stared at him in terror. Right? How many of you, if you got an angel, you'd be terrified too? Like if you're just minding your own business, hanging out, and then all of a sudden there is this big giant angel in front of you, and the angel's like, Brandon, and you're like, uh, terror, right? That's Cornelius. He's filled with terror, okay? So we'll keep reading. What is this angel going to say? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God, and now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel spoke to him, had had departed, he called two of his servants, a devout soldier, from among those who attended him, and he related everything to them, and then he sent them on to Joppa. So the first person we meet here is a man named Cornelius. There's a couple of things that we know about Cornelius. The first thing we know about Cornelius is that he is from Caesarea, which this would mean he's a Gentile. Right? Caesarea is a Gentile territory, that they're not Jewish. So according to Jewish tradition and custom, they would be considered unclean, right? They're outside of the, the scope of God's people. They weren't raised, you know, in the reading the Old Testament or the Torah. They didn't know the law. They weren't one of God's people. And so they didn't have synagogues. And, you know, for him, he probably didn't grow up going to the temple because there was no Jewish presence in the region of Caesarea. He, he was somebody who was far from God. He, he was a Gentile. The second thing we see is this, is that he actually, he was a Roman. And so as being a Roman, they would worship multiple gods. They practice what's known as polytheism, that they wouldn't just have one God, they would have multiple gods, many gods, and it was a combination of Greek and Roman gods. So there could have been thousands. And, and, and one of the ways that they would worship in Caesarea, they had two temples. They had the temple to um, 
to Aphrodite's and they had the temple to Fortuna. For Aphrodite's, it was actually the fertility sex goddess. And you would go and you would go to the temple and then you would perform sexual acts with priestesses and prostitutes. And that was your form of worship. And then the other god was Fortuna, which was the goddess of luck or the goddess of wealth. And then you would go and you'd give a bunch of money to that and then that god would bless you. And this is kind of the culture in Rome that he would have grown up in. In addition to that, you also had to pledge to Caesar as your god. That Caesar, he was kind of like their king or their president. And Caesar, he set himself up as if he was the, the god over that nation. Now Caesar, he was a wicked, ruthless, godless tyrant of a man that he would actually, he would persecute the church. Rome, they considered the early church to be like pests. They hated the Jewish people, but they just bared and tolerated them. And they would do anything that they could to be able to stop and stamp out the church as the church continued to spread. And so Cornelius, being a Gentile from Caesarea in Rome, he had pledged his allegiance to Caesar. Beyond that, what we also notice is that he is a soldier, that he actually works for the Italian cohort. He, he's, a, he's a very big deal, right? That he's a centurion. He's like a leader in the nation. He's a very popular man. This would be like saying today he was a five-star general. I mean, he was a big deal, very wealthy. He was very prominent. He was very powerful. He had a lot of prestige. He was a man of affluence. He was a man who people really looked up to and respected. And as the, the leader of this, he would have had a hundred different men who reported to him and other people who respect him. I mean, Cornelius, he's a very big deal. But here's the other thing we see is this, is that Cornelius is actually a seeker too. That, that means that he has turned his back on Rome because we see here that what we notice is that he, he becomes a devout man that he is a God-feared. Now, that doesn't mean he's a Jew, and that doesn't mean that he is a Gentile, but that means that he is a person who is in process, that he wants to come to know who God is. He wants to understand who God is. He wants to get to know him. He wants to experience this life change through Jesus. And here's, here's what we notice is this, is that he actually turns his back on Rome, that he disavows his allegiance to Caesar, that he even begins to probably question his career choices. That this would mean for, for Cornelius that he has stopped worshiping the gods of Rome and the polytheism, and he's beginning to pursue after the God of the Old Testament and the God of the Bible. He is a man who is in process. He is a man who is seeking. He is a man who is searching. He is a man who is wanting, and he is a man who is, he is willing. Now, for Cornelius, undoubtedly, over the course of his life, he's probably done some things that he is ashamed of. Right, you don't work your way up through the ranks of Rome and through the government without having a couple of dead bodies hidden somewhere. Just think about it. If Rome hated the church so much, and as he continued to move his way through the ranks, he would have done horrible and shameful things over the course of his life. This would include like raping or pillaging entire cities, setting them on fire, persecuting the church, killing early Christians. I mean, these are the things that Cornelius had done. And so Cornelius, as he's turning his back on everything, here's what he notices. He's noticed that everything I've tried has only left me feeling empty. That everything I've done, it, it never worked. Everything I've tried, it only, it only left me feeling hopeless and broken. And just imagine Cornelius being alone and realizing that nothing he's ever done has ever made a difference. That's where Cornelius is at. And I want you to understand something. Most people that we meet, they're a lot like Cornelius. See, Cornelius, he grows up in this society and in this culture of sex and of greed and of wealth and of prominence and of power. He grows up in this culture and this society where he gives himself towards everything, but there comes a point and a place in a person's life where they realize that it's all broken, that it's all pointless, and it's hopeless, and when you get alone, what you realize is that everything you've given yourself towards, it just doesn't satisfy. That all of the money, it doesn't satisfy. All the drugs and all the sex and all the alcohol and all of the jobs, they just don't satisfy. So you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you work really hard, you get that promotion, you make a little bit more money and you're still unsatisfied. You finally meet a girl, you get married, have kids and you find yourself, you're still unsatisfied that everything you do in your life, you read the philosophy, you read the self-helps, you follow all the steps and all the manuals, you've done all the religions, you researched everything, but in the end what you discover is it's all still empty. Most people we meet, they're just like Cornelius. Most people we meet in our lives, they are willing. The problem is, is they are unable. They want to know, but they can't. Most people, they're like Cornelius. This is actually my wife's story. 
My wife, 19 years old, as a non-Christian, she one night found herself in her bedroom and she was praying, and, or she was not praying, but she, all of a sudden there was this, this panic or this emptiness and this loneliness that began to, to come over her and, and then she, she began to cry. And she remembered as when she was a little girl, her grandpa would actually have a Gideon Bible that he kept in her, his pocket. And anytime he would go over to the grandpa's house, he would pull out his little Gideon Bible and read a story to her. Or that his grandmother, her grandmother would bring her to the Baptist church. And she remembered as a little girl having this, this sense of faith and being surrounded by people who were Christians and who loved her and told her about Jesus. But then her grandpa died and then her, her family got divorced and, and then it had been about 15 years since she had anyone tell her about Jesus. And that night she, she began to cry and, and, and she prayed and she wanted to give her life to Jesus and she wanted to become a Christian, but she didn't know how because there was no one in her life to be able to tell her. And so she called me on the phone as this was going on, and I am not a Christian at this point in my life either. And she says, hey, I think I want to become a Christian. I thought, that's a terrible idea. I don't want to do that. That's horrible. <laughs> and so I was like, well, I don't really know any other Christians besides my grandparents, and so you can come talk to my Nana. Okay, big mistake. <laughs> so the next time she came over, she began to talk with Nana, and I just remember Nana coming around her and just listening to her and just hearing her. And then my Nana was like, well, well, let me pray for you. And then, and then Ashley, she became a Christian. See, for Ashley, she didn't have any Christian friends. Her parents weren't believers. She didn't have anyone. There was no one in her life to be able to share faith with her. For her, she was willing, but at that point, she was unable. Cornelius didn't have a grandpa with a Gideon Bible. Cornelius, he didn't have a grandma to take him to a Baptist church. Cornelius, he didn't have a nana to pray for him. Cornelius didn't have anyone. See, the problem for him is not that he was unwilling. Oh, man, he wanted to. He had turned his back on everything. He was trying as hard as he could. But he was just unable because there was no one there to be able to reach him. And so what does God do? Here's what God does. God sends you. Every single day you walk past people just like Cornelius. Every single day in your life, you probably don't even notice it because we're not really paying that much attention because you never know what somebody else is going through. You never know what somebody else is walking through. You never know what God is doing in someone else's heart. You never know how God has already been working behind the scenes. You never know what another person is walking through. You never know what another person has been through. You never know when a person is ready, when a person is wanting. You never know when a person is willing. And so here's what God does. God sends you. Cornelius, he gets Peter. Ashley got Nana. The problem is, Cornelius gets Peter because some people are willing, but they are unable. And then the next thing we see is that some people, they are able, but they are unwilling. That's Peter. Peter is able. The problem is he's unwilling because up until this point, when he means everyone, he really only means some. We'll keep reading. Verse nine, the next day, as they were on their journey, they were approaching the city. Peter went up into the housetop. It's about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanting something to eat. While they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. How many of you have ever been so hungry you actually pass out? Yeah, that's it? Yeah. I mean, it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. He's up on a roof. You know, he's praying. He's like, man, I'm hungry. I'm going to go down, get me a snacky snack, and then he takes a nappy nap. That's Peter. Hey, he's like, I'm going to get me a, a burrito and I'm going to pray. It's going to be an amazing day. And then he falls asleep. Okay, well, what happens next? He has a vision. And the heavens opened up and he saw a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals like reptiles and birds of the air. And there was a voice that came and said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Very important. We'll come back to that. Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. 
And this happened three times, and then the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Okay, so Peter here, what he's doing is he's, he's praying, he's on top of a roof, and it's in the, in the middle of the day, and he decides he's hungry, he wants to get himself something to eat, and so he goes downstairs, and as he's preparing himself something, all of a sudden, he falls asleep, and then he has this vision. And in the vision, it's all different types of animals, beasts of the field, birds of the air, and reptiles. I mean, you're talking pigs and horses and birds and snakes and lizards and turtles and reptiles, and they all begin just falling from the four corners of heaven, and then God comes and says, hey, Peter, I want you to, I want you to eat these animals. I want you to rise, I want you to kill, and I want you to, to eat. And here's what Peter says. No way, God, that's disgusting. I am not doing that. I, I, I ain't doing it. It ain't going to happen. And then three times, God says, hey, rise, kill, and eat. Peter's like, nope, no way, ain't happening. Rise, kill, and eat. God, I told you, not happening. And here's what God says. Do not call common what I have made clean. And then all of a sudden, poof, right? Sheep goes back up. All the animals are gone. Peter wakes up. He's like, wow, that was a weird dream. Right. You, you, you would blame it on the burrito, but he hadn't eaten it yet. And so you know it has to come from the Lord. And so he has this weird dream. The sheet goes back up into heaven. And then Peter's wondering, why would God say this? See, one thing you need to understand is that in the Old Testament, there were certain foods that were clean, and there were certain foods that were considered to be unclean. And these unclean foods would consider birds, beasts of the field, reptiles were, were considered unclean foods. And so if you were to eat them or touch them or kill them or to touch their dead bodies, you would be what is known as ceremonially unclean, that you wouldn't be able to have fellowship with God's people. You weren't able to go into worship. You had to go outside of the temple where you would become cleansed. And then you were allowed to come back and have fellowship with God's people. And there were certain foods you could and could not eat. And then God says, I want you to eat all of these foods that you've considered clean for your entire life. And then Peter's like, it ain't happening. Not going to happen. I'm not doing it. In my whole life, I have never touched or ate an unclean food. And then he just begins to think, well, that's interesting. What does that mean? Well, we'll pick up and we'll see what happens next as the story continues. Verse 17, now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, two men were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, and they stood at the gate. All of a sudden, Cornelius boys show up, knock, knock on the door. Hey, Peter, where are you at? And he's like, oh, that's me. Okay, let me go see what happens. And called out and asked whether Simon Peter was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one that you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And then they said, Cornelius is of upright, God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation was directed by an angel, a holy angel, to send for you to come to his house and hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. <gasps> Deep breath. A lot of Bible. Okay, here's something that I want to point out to you. It's very important. There's two verses here. That, that you really need to understand. One's verse 13 and one's verse 20. So if you, you go and look at it, verse 13, here's what it says. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. What you need to understand is that for Jewish people, eating wasn't just putting food in their mouth and swallowing it down, right? That's kind of how we do it in America. I mean, we eat everything all the time, anytime. You know, we're just like, oh, let me take that. Let me take this, get that off the shelf, make myself a little snack, right? And we, they don't consider food the way that we would do it. For them, food was a deep act of fellowship and it was a deep act of friendship. And it was saying that I welcome you and I approve of you. See, they didn't just drive through a window and get food cooked by a teenager that was been deep fried for 20 hours and then just shove it in their face while watching TV. That's not how they ate. Whenever they ate, they actually would, would have fellowship together. And that's why God made such certain rules around what, what food was appropriate, what food was inappropriate, because God wanted his people to be holy. He wanted to be set apart. He wanted to be different from the remainder of the world. And whenever you would share a meal, you were actually welcoming somebody in. Okay, that's important. Then jump down and look at verse 20. What does verse 20 say? It says that I want you to rise I want you to go down, and I want you to accompany them. Do you see the connection here? That one is an act of fellowship around food, and then the other is an act of fellowship around people. And what God is trying to show Peter is this. I'm not talking about unclean animals. I'm talking about unclean people. 
that there are people that they had considered to be unclean. There were people that he had considered to be unwelcomed. There were people who up until this point, Peter said, there is no way that I'm going to spend time with these people because they are unclean. They are unwelcome. They are unloved. They are unworthy. And up until this point, Peter had never situated himself with people in his life that are any different than him. How much like that are we as a church? Think about it. For us as a church, how many of your friends are non-believers? How many of your friends are different than you? How many times do you go out of your way to build relationships with people that are different than you? See, as a church, we get real good at having church, but we ain't that good about bringing other people into our homes. And see, this is what he's saying. He's saying, hey, these people are not unclean. Do not call common what I have made clean. And then he begins to make this connection. He says, oh, when God says unclean, he's not talking about animals. Oh, he's talking about people. Do not call common what God has made clean. See, Peter, he begins to get this. Peter, he understands this. And here's the problem, is that Peter is able He's just unwilling. That he is unwilling to build relationships with people who look different than him. He's unwilling to build relationships with people who think different than him. He's unwilling to build relationships with people who act different than him, vote different than him, believe different than him, who, who have different lives than him. He is able, but he is unwilling. Now, if you think there's anyone who should be able, oh, you would think it would be Peter. Like Peter, he should be the one who understands this because Peter got a front row seat. He got, he got courtside tickets to watch Jesus for his entire ministry. He was front row. I mean, he watched Jesus preach and teach and heal. He saw Jesus get in fights with the Pharisees and all the religious people. I mean, Peter, he was right there for every single thing that Jesus did. You think, Peter, hey, do you remember whenever Jesus, he hung out with prostitutes? Do you remember that? Do you remember when Jesus called sinners to be his friends? Do you remember whenever Jesus went to the outcasts, to the tax collectors, and to the lowest of the low? Do you remember when Jesus broke down racial boundaries as he goes to the woman at the well? Hey, do you remember whenever Jesus, he sat down with a guy possessed with 10,000 demons, cast out the demons, and then had a little Bible study with them? Hey, do you remember when Jesus literally went, touched a leper, and the unclean became clean at just a touch from Jesus? Do you remember when Jesus did all those things? It only took five years for Peter to forget. But how often are we like Peter? How many times has God loved the unlovable in you? And yet we still refuse to share his love with others. How many times has God welcomed you? And yet in our own lives, we still see people and we say, not welcome. How many times has God forgiven the unforgivable in you and you still can't forgive those who hurt you? How many times have we seen, have we witnessed, have we touched, have we experienced the goodness and the grace and the mercy of God and we sing about it and we love it and we tell only people like us about it? Because somewhere deep down inside, we're more like Peter than we'd care to admit. Somewhere deep down inside, when we say everyone, we really only mean some. Up until this point, for him, everyone really only meant some. And here's, here's the reason why. It's because when we see people, we see labels. That we like to label other people. Whenever we see somebody, we, we, give, them, we give them a label. So we see the drunk guy, we see the drug addict, those are labels. We see you know, black people, we see white people, we see Asians and Latinos, those are labels. We see people who are like, oh, those are the Democrats over there. Or then maybe you're like, oh, those are the Republicans over there. Right? That's labels. I mean, you could just take your pick. We love to label everybody. Rich, poor, young, old, straight, gay, whatever it is, we make labels out of people. And then we begin to judge them based upon our own label. 
oh, they don't look like me. They don't act like me. They don't think like me. They don't vote like me. They don't behave like me. They don't believe like me. And then we begin to judge them because we think we're the good people and they're the bad people. And we say, oh, you can't do that and can't do this and can't do that. Oh, you need to be here and fit in and become a person like me. Listen to me. If you want everyone to look like you, it's called idolatry. Because if everyone in your life looks just like you, they will never look like Jesus. Here's what we see. We tend to look and see people for where they're at. We tend to look and see people for what they've done. We tend to see people for where they are. Do you know how God sees people? For who they are. See, God, when he sees people, he doesn't see labels. When God sees people, he just sees people. To God, Cornelius is not a Gentile. To God, Cornelius is Cornelius, and he loves him. Whenever God sees an alcoholic, he doesn't see an alcoholic. He sees somebody he loves. Whenever God sees an addict, he doesn't see an addict. He sees somebody he loves. Whenever God sees somebody that is hurting, he doesn't see their situation. He sees somebody he loves. See, we tend to look at the situation. God sees them through the eyes of salvation because he doesn't see labels. God, he sees people. And everyone to God means everyone. Do you really want to be a part of a church that is for everyone? That's a scary thing, if you're honest. Because you know what that means? It means there's going to be a lot of people in our church that are different than you. It means there's going to be a lot of people in our church who are coming from backgrounds, who are coming from upbringings, who are coming from beliefs that are a lot different than you. And if you really want to be a church for everyone, that means we've got to be a church for everyone. Do you want to have a homeless person in your house for a community group? Everyone means everyone. Do you want to have a drug addict serve on your serve team? Strung out track marks down their arm? Everyone means everyone. Would you have coffee with somebody who voted for a politician different than you and then not get angry at them? Everyone means everyone. Would you want to be a part of a church that dedicates a baby that's born outside of marriage? Everyone means everyone, even the little ones. Would you want to be a part of a church to where women who had abortions, they don't have to go through it alone, and instead of judging them, we love them and welcome them? Would you want to be a part of that church? Would you be willing to sit down with a transgender teenager who's struggling with identity issues and sexuality and just listen to their story so that way you can love them and show them the love of Jesus? Because everyone really means everyone. Everyone doesn't mean some. Because when God sees those people, he sees them as people. And he loves them. Everyone means everyone. And what prevents us as a church from understanding this is that we see people as labels instead of seeing them as people. Now some of you, you immediately say, but Byron, does that mean that we don't teach on sin anymore? No, that's not what it means. Does that mean that, that we, don't, we stop preaching the Bible? No, nope, we love the Bible. We're going to preach the Bible. Does, does that mean that, that we just excuse it or we don't talk about it or we don't hold people accountable? That's not what it means. But here's what it means is we will not be a church that allows a label to prevent us from loving people. When we say everyone, we mean everyone. Because that's God's heart. So Cornelius, he was 
willing, but he was unable. Peter, he was able, but he was unwilling. And the next thing we see is that Jesus, he is both able and he is willing. Here, here's, here's how we see this play out. Picking up, the next day he rose and he went down with them. And then he went and got some brothers from Joppa to accompany him. And on the following day, they entered into Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting him, and he called together all of his relatives and his close friends. Okay, this is a packed house, right? Cornelius, he's like, hey, this guy Peter's coming. We need to go ahead and get everybody ready because we've been hearing about this Jesus guy and how Jesus can actually, like, maybe love people like us. We've been looking for God. We've been wondering. We've been searching. We've been wanting. We've been waiting. We're actually very willing. And so let me go get everybody that I know. You know what I've discovered is that new Christians tend to reach everybody and they don't have prejudices against other people. Do you ever notice that? It's people who have been like Peter in church for a long time. They tend to be the people who reach the least amount of people because you just get inoculated in church sometime, amen? And so, so it's new believers, it's new people. They're the ones who go out and reach people because they're not held back by labels. And so he goes and he says, let me bring all my friends. Let me get everybody. Let me reach everybody. And then he brings them all in. I mean, this is his neighbors. This is coworkers. This is his you know, whole family, his, his wife, his daughter, his son, his auntie his uncle, anybody he could imagine, anybody could listen to. He's like, hey, come over, this guy Peter, he's going to come and talk to us about God. So here's what we see next. Then Peter entered into Cornelius' house. Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted up saying, stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with them, he went in and found many persons gathered together. Verse 28, and he said to them, you know yourselves how it is unlawful for a Jew to associate with or to visit a person of another nation. He's like, I could get in trouble for doing this. I'm breaking some rules right now by doing this. Right, this is, this is not normal. This is not anything that people do. That you are a Gentile and I'm a Jew. That you're in Caesarea. I'm from Jerusalem and Galilee. Like our people, we just don't mix. And so he said, I'm, I'm taking a bold step of faith right now by going and meeting you in this place. But here's why. That God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. But what if they're different than me? Doesn't matter. Not common or unclean. But what if they're, they, they believe different than me? Doesn't matter. Not common nor unclean. What if they have a criminal record? Doesn't matter. Not common or unclean. What if they did this? Doesn't matter. Not common or unclean. Because everyone means everyone. So when I sent for you, I came without objection. Then I asked why you have sent me. Okay, there's some life change that's happening here for Peter. That Peter, he is convicted of his unwillingness. That Peter, during this interaction, he's convicted of his, his, his inability to be able to go across and to be able to love and help and serve another person. That God came to him and said three times, rise, kill, and eat. He's like, nope, ain't happening, not gonna do it. He gets an argument with God three times. Hey, and then eventually God's like, okay, go do this now. And he's like, fine, okay. I want you to notice something. They both got an angel. The angel goes to Cornelius. The angel goes in the vision before Peter. God spoke to both of them. He says, Cornelius, I want you to go find Peter. And here's what we notice is this. Cornelius obeyed the first time. Peter, it took three times. Here's what we notice is that the unbeliever had more obedience than the believer did. The unbeliever was more willing than the believer was. The question for them wasn't of willingness, it was of their ability. And as they begin to have this interaction, God starts working on the heart of Peter. And Peter, he is convicted of his prejudice. He is convicted of his racial bias. He is convicted of his judgments against others. He is convicted of his unbiblical beliefs. And the God begins working through these things in the life of Peter. And then Peter's like, without hesitation, I came. Not necessarily true. But he came. You know, this is not in my notes, but I need to say this. 
is that some of you, you're here today and you're like Cornelius. To where when you hear a life change, you think it's for some. But you don't know what I've done. You don't know where I'm at. You don't know what I've gone through. And I see it happening for the other people around me, but I just don't know if God's going to do it for me. And I'm saying, if you're just going to be obedient as the Lord leads you, you're going to see him do some great things. But also, some people here, you're like Peter, and you're disobedient, and you're stubborn, and you're hard-headed, and you've told God no three times. But you know what? Today's your day to become obedient. And God's going to do some incredible things. And I just feel like there's some people like Peter in the room right now who you're feeling shame around this issue. And you're like, I've already failed three times. Why would I even start right now? Because even Peter gets to experience life change too. I'm going to keep reading. Here's what we see next. And Cornelius told him four days ago about this hour. I was praying in my house and it was the ninth hour. Behold, a man came before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come now. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. This is a captive audience. Right, he goes into their house. They're having a little community group. Everybody's sitting there. I mean, the whole house is packed. I mean, people are sitting too deep on a couch. Right, you got red solo cups on the windows. People are in the kitchen. I mean, this place is crowded. And they're just trying to figure out, they're like, okay, what are we doing? We're all here. We're waiting. We're eager. We're willing. We're, we're wanting to know. Hey, tell, me, tell me who Jesus is. Right, this is a very captive audience. Like, you guys, y'all are pretty good. Right, but you know, I still have to battle with your phones. Right? You're checking your Instagram. You're 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 looking on Facebook. You're worrying, where am I going to go to eat? How much more time does he have? Right, I need to wrap this up. Right, and you're thinking, okay, well, when does the work come out? You know, what are the kids going to do? And so you're working through all these things. There's distractions for these people. There is no distractions. They're they're ready. They're they're eager. They're they're willing. And for Peter, up until this point, he's got a pretty captive audience, and this is pretty new for him. I mean, if you just think through the book of Acts, I mean, the first week time he preached, people called him drunk, right? That's a pretty good sermon, amen? <laughs> and then he gets beaten, he gets thrown in prison, his buddy Stephen is murdered for preaching. I mean, preaching hasn't gone very good for him, and so here's where he's at. He is in a Roman soldier's house, in Caesarea, surrounded by Gentiles, breaking the law by being there. You think he's a little nervous? He's probably a little nervous. So he's like, okay, well, what do you want me to do? How's this going to go? And then here's, here's, here's Cornelius and all the Gentiles. They're like, hey, just tell me about Jesus. Hey, I heard that he can change our lives. Is that true? I heard that he can, he can change everything about us. Is that true? I heard that he can forgive sins. Is that true? I heard that he would love people even like me. Is that true? I heard, that, I heard that this Jesus guy, he, he could change people's lives. Is that true? It's a captive audience. So Peter opened his mouth, and here's what he says. Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. How much partiality? None. That God has no favorites. That there is not one person that God loves more than another person. There is not one race that God loves more than another race. There is not one gender that God loves more than another gender. There is not one country that God loves more than another country. There is not one sexual orientation or preference that God loves more as a person than of another person because God shows no partiality. That whenever he sees people, he sees people that he loves dearly and he holds no partiality. And here's what he says next. He says, in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. It's not that we stop calling sin, sin, but we start leading people to Jesus. That anyone who in any nation does as the Lord loves and the Lord calls and follows in these patterns and gives their lives to Jesus, he loves everyone equally because people means people and all means all and there is no partiality and there is no favoritism in the sight of God. 
He goes on and he begins to say this. As the word that he sent to Israel, preaching the good news of peace of Jesus Christ, because he is Lord of how many? Just in case you missed it the first time. All, not most, not many, not almost, not some, all. You yourselves know what happened through Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are the witnesses that both he did in the country of the Jews and of Jerusalem, that he put to death by hanging on a tree, but God raised him up on the third day, and he made him appear, not all to, to all people, but to those who have been chosen by God as witnesses. We ate with him, we drank with him, after he rose from the dead, and commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all prophets bear witness that everyone, how many? Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of their sins through his name. Peter sits down and he preaches a sermon. And you know what his sermon's about? His sermon is all about Jesus because it's only Jesus that changes lives. It's only Jesus that brings salvation. It's only Jesus that gives hope. It's only Jesus that brings mercy. It's only Jesus that provides redemption. Cornelius had tried everything and it didn't work. He was broken. It was meaningless. It was pointless. He was empty. Nothing he did, it ever made any difference in his life. And then one day, Peter shows up and Cornelius meets Jesus and everything in his life begins to change. And Peter just tells them, this is who Jesus is. That you feel far away, but not too far from Jesus. You feel distant, but not too distant from Jesus. You feel shame, but there is no shame that can keep you from Jesus because Jesus comes to you. That Jesus leaves heaven and enters into this world. That Jesus sees you in your brokenness and in your hopelessness. Jesus sees you in the middle of your mess and up in heaven. Jesus says, I will do what you were unwilling to do. I will leave and I will come just so I can be with you. You. And Jesus, he lives a perfect life, the life that we could never live. You need to understand something, that it's sin that makes a person unclean. That means you are unclean too. That every single one of us, we have sinned. We have fallen short of the glory of God. We have not lived as we ought to live. That we have not done as we have ought to do. That we have sinned. And you and me and every single person, regardless of background, regardless of belief, regardless of the nation, regardless of your political affiliation, regardless of anything, every single one of us, rich, poor, young, old, black, white, Latino, Asian, everyone has sinned and therefore is unclean and then Jesus comes and he cleanses you do not call common what he has made clean and Jesus comes and he does all of this he goes to the cross and he is sacrificed for us he says you're broken but let me be broken for you that you are sick, and so I will bear your sickness upon my shoulders. That you are hopeless, and so I'll stand here and hang on this cross in your place, and the Father will turn his back on me, so that way his face will shine upon you. And Jesus does all of this, and it's only Jesus that's able to save, and it's only Jesus that is able to forgive and it is only Jesus that is able to overcome our sins. And Jesus is able to do all of that. But you know what's even more important? Not only is Jesus able to do it, but he's willing to do it. See, there's a difference between being able and being willing. I'm sure we're all able to do a lot of things, but that doesn't mean we're necessarily willing to do them. But Jesus was willing to do this. Not because he can, but because he wants to. He wants to. He wants to. And it's not just for you. He wants to do it for you, and 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 for them. 
Not just that he can do, but that he wants to for everyone. Because Jesus is both able, and we also know that Jesus is also, he's also willing. And here's what we see that happens next. And I'll just be honest, this part gets me fired up. The Holy Spirit fell on everyone who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised, and all of those, they came and they were amazed. I want you to think about something. Who is the least likely person in your life to ever become a Christian? I want you to just think about that for a sec. Who is the least likely person in your life that you think they would never become a Christian? They are too jacked up. They are too far gone. They have done way too much. They're so hard-hearted and they're so rebellious. There is no way that they would ever want to listen or ever want to hear, and they would never, ever become a Christian. I want you to just think about that for just a moment. Who is that person? Who is that group? Who are those people? It's kind of sad that we can even think of a name, isn't it? Because there is no person who is too far from the reach of God. See, for, for Peter, what he is witnessing right now is he is witnessing the unthinkable. No one would imagine Gentiles would become Christians. Could you even fathom that? I mean, it was just for some, and now it's for everyone. I mean, this is going to jack up the entire church after this, because then we're going to have all sorts of people coming in here. Everyone means everyone. He can't fathom this because it was for the Jews and now it's available for everybody, for anybody, for everyone. And then here's what he begins to see is that the, the Gentiles, they get filled with the Holy Spirit. They repent of their sins. They begin speaking in tongues. They begin worshiping God and they begin celebrating and they begin praising him. And then Peter, he's like, how in the world did this happen? Oh yeah, that's right. Life changed through Jesus is for everyone. Who is the least likely person in your life to ever be a Christian? Maybe that's who God's actually calling you to go to. You say, but but I don't get along with them. Doesn't matter. But 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 I I don't I don't know. Okay, doesn't matter. You don't know what they've done. Doesn't matter. See, this is what God wants to do because when the unwilling meets the unable, Jesus is able to do the unthinkable. You mean to tell me that Gentiles get saved? You bet. You mean to tell me that homeless people get saved? Every week. You mean to tell me that, 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 that people who have had abortions, they, they can get saved? Oh, yeah. You mean to tell me that alcoholics and drug addicts? Yes, every single week. You mean to tell me gay people can meet Jesus? Yes. You mean to tell me that anyone really means anyone? Yes, because when God says anyone, he means everyone, because life change is for everybody, not just people who look like you, but for people who want to be like Jesus. It's available for everyone. And when the unable meets the unwilling, our hearts for the lost, our hearts for the broken, our hearts for those who are far from God, when we finally get a picture of what he is wanting to do, when the unable meets the unwilling, then he is going to do the unthinkable. People meet Jesus every single week. And it's amazing. And so here's how this story ends. They watch the whole Gentiles just begin worshiping and praising. And in their group and sermon, they're responding. And now the church has to make a decision. Here's what we see that the church has to do. Peter declared, can anyone withhold water from these who are being, these, these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. We see that some people are willing but unable. Some people are unwilling, but they are able. We see that Jesus is both able and willing, which means that for us as a church, we should be willing because Jesus is able. I want to show you a picture of my friend Chase. Whenever I read about Cornelius' story, I think about my, my friend Chase. There's this picture right there. Chase, when you see him today, you wouldn't really understand his story. Whenever Chase and his wife Lori first came to redemption, they were a mess. And I mean that in the the most gracious way because they were a mess. Chase was actually strung out on crystal meth and selling drugs. He had 
been in prison, bouncing out of halfway houses and, 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 and uh, sober houses. He was homeless, and he was arrested for leading police on a high-speed chase. And no, that's not where he got his nickname. <laughs> and my friend Brian actually invited Chase to redemption. And through that invite, Chase and Lori, they came to church, and on their first Sunday, they heard the good news of Jesus. See, they knew that they needed to meet Jesus. They just didn't know how. And it only took one invite for them to respond. And so they they came, and they were just so hungry, and they were just so desperate, and they were just so willing to experience something real. And through the preaching of the word and through the welcoming of us as a church, Chase and Lori actually became Christians. And then that Sunday was a special Sunday because their first Sunday actually happened to be Baptism Sunday. And that put us in a little predicament because they got in line for baptism, but they didn't sign up for it. They just went and stood in line. (laughs) And so we we had to make a decision. We had to ask ourselves, can we really withhold water from these people? Can we withhold water from these people who have experienced the same life change that we have? Can we really be a church that withholds water from anyone? And some churches, they do. Some people, they they do. And tragically, any time we look down on another person and we refuse to share our faith, we are the ones who are withholding water from them. Maybe that they're just waiting for someone like you to go share your faith with them. And every time you are disobedient, you're withholding water from somebody else. Because it could be your invitation that brings the life change. And we had to ask, are we going to be a church that withholds water from anyone? I mean, they profess faith in Jesus. That's all it takes. If you want to get baptized, two things you need, Jesus and water. That's it. And they had both of them. Or so we're going to withhold water from them. Some people say, but you don't know what they've done. Doesn't matter. Can you withhold water from them? But they're addicts. Doesn't matter. Can you withhold water from them? But their marriage is falling apart. Doesn't matter. Can we withhold water for them? But they have a criminal record. He just got out of prison. He's in a halfway house. He is broken. He is destitute. He is alone. He is hopeless. Is there anyone in this room who you would withhold water from this person? So we baptized him that day. Because we will not be a church that withholds water from anyone. If you profess faith in Jesus, then you receive forgiveness in his name of your sins. And everyone means everyone. Because that's what life change through Jesus looks like. I want to be a part of a church that just says over and over and over again in the heartbeat of our church, the whole reason for this series, my dream, my goal, my hope, my prayer for us is that we would be a church like the church in Acts and we would just say that we are willing because Jesus is able, that we are willing to welcome anyone because Jesus is able to save everyone, that we we are willing to love anyone because Jesus is able to save everyone. That we are able to serve anyone because Jesus is able to save everyone. Because when Jesus says life changes for everyone, he does not mean some. He means everyone. So how does the story end? Well, Cornelius, he actually becomes a member of the church. He was the first Gentile ever included in the church. And 2,000 years later, the only reason why redemption is here today is because of Cornelius meeting Jesus. Because you're a Gentile. And every single day, more and more and more and more and more people keep meeting Jesus because of one person's obedience. Well, what about Peter? Well, Peter actually, towards the end of his life, he plants another church and he writes two books of the Bible. And you know where he plants that church at? It's in Rome. And he spends the rest of his life ministering to people who are far from God and different than him. 
Well, what about Chase and Lori? Well, Chase is right there serving communion today. His wife, Lori, is on our usher team. They lead a community group here at our church. They're on our usher team, our serve team. They went from having an addiction to leading sober house ministries. God's brought their marriage together, actually healed one of them of a disease. God said amazing things in their life. And just last month, Chase received a call to enter into a process to become an elder here at our church. He's been called to be a pastor. That's what life change through Jesus looks like. You never know what another person's going through, and you never know what God's going to do through another person. Everybody means everybody. Well, thanks again for tuning in with us here at Redemption Church. If this message was helpful to you in any way, leave a review, like, comment, or share with your friends to help others experience life change through Jesus. Oh.